This week we are wrapping up the book of Titus. It's been um, a four-week series. I can't believe it that we've got to the end already. It's a short little book, but it's a really practical, powerful book. And uh, I hope and trust that you've been enjoying it. We started uh, a few weeks ago with uh, the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, talking about a faith that grows, that he, he, he wants us to have a faith that's growing and that we're growing in, in truth and knowledge and that we're, we're, we're growing in godly living. And it's a theme that you see sort of run through the book of Titus he, he talks a lot about those two things, right uh, teaching and right living. He believes that right teaching should lead to right living in our lives if we're receiving it. And so that's sort of the, one of the big main themes that he is uh, impressing on Titus to impress onto the elders and the church leaders uh, all across the island of Crete that they would teach the right thing, that they would destroy and kick out and silence the false teachers and that they would teach the older men. They would teach the younger men. They would teach the older women. They would teach the younger women. They would teach the slaves. They would teach everybody the right way to live and encourage them to grow in godliness and in, and in goodness. And so... It's, a, it's an ongoing theme. Uh, we talked uh, the second week about the real thing where we looked at the false teachers and he said, you've got, to, you've got to kick them out. You've got to quiet them. You've got to get rid of them. We need the real thing, the real deal. We need men and women in church, not just leaders, but everybody that sits in the chair to be committed to be a real follower of Jesus that we do damage to his name if we call ourselves a believer and then go out those doors and don't know and don't and people don't know it by how we live right amen and so we we're called we're called to be the real thing last week we talked about grace that his grace has been revealed and uh and uh and and the teachings on um on the men and the women and um and all of that. And now we come to chapter 3, and we're going to uh, wrap up the series today. As Paul's letter to Titus comes to a close, he, he emphasizes again one of his main themes. He wants Titus to teach and promote godly living, and you'll see it again and again and again. Chapter 2, he had all these specific instructions for various groups, like I just said, the men and the women, uh, the older and the younger. But this chapter, chapter 3, his focus is on believers in general and, and how we are to conduct ourselves in the world. And it's more of a, in chapter 2, he zoned in and, and looked at particular people. In chapter 3, he, he zones out and gives this bigger, bigger view, this bigger picture. Paul reminds Titus to, to teach the church in Crete that they must live right even before the government and before all people. The government? The government? Yeah, they were corrupt back then too. Yeah. The government. Live right before the government and before all people, he says. 
Look at, uh, put up for me, and we'll, we'll, we'll slice this through one by one here. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. How are you to live right in terms of the government? Living right with the government. How, I, I, what's he talking about? I, he, he says we should submit, we should be obedient, we should be ready to do good. So being obedient to the government was an especially difficult subject on the island of Crete. They were ruffians, barbarians, immortal, wild, crazy people. And the island was uh, being run by Romans. They were in charge of the island. And the Cretans, as you could imagine, weren't that happy about it. And so for him to say, submit to the government and its officers, it's not that big of a deal for us today, in, in a sense, but it was a, it was a bigger deal for them, and so it's important that you get that. Sometimes we have people in charge that we don't like. It's the 21st century. I'm not, make, I, I, I'm not a political guy. Uh, I, whether we, I always say to people, here's the deal. Whether you voted for the prime minister or not, he's our prime minister, right? Whether we voted for our mayor or not, he's our mayor. Whether we voted for our premier or not, he's our premier. And so you need to wrap your head around that, whether you like it or not, whether you like that person or not. Sometimes we have people in charge that we don't like either. Well, get over it. You're supposed to submit and still be obedient. Just because you don't like somebody who's in power doesn't give you the right to break every law because, you know, because, uh, you know, this person is someone that you don't respect. No, that's not how it works. You respect the law. You submit. You're obedient. You do good in your society and to the world, no matter who's sitting in what chair. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that you're still required, he's saying here, to be a law-abiding citizen, right? It doesn't give you the right to disobey the laws of the land. And I was thinking about things like taxes, speeding. Well, let's not even go there. I mean, really, I don't know how far we take it and how legalistic we want to get, but, but it really requires us. He's, he's saying, listen, be a good citizen. Be a law-abiding citizen. Be a man or a woman worthy of respect. And someone who's worthy of respect pays their taxes, is involved in their society, is a person who's committed to doing good and to making a difference in their neighborhood and in their town and in their city. That's who we're called to be. It doesn't give us the right, if we don't like somebody, to disobey the laws of the land. That's not how it works. Pay your taxes and stay on the right side of the law. You may be unhappy, by the way. You may wish you had better leaders, by the way, but you still must obey. Somebody said yes. That's just how it works, right? Submitting to a government, by the way, I don't want to get into it uh, too much, but submitting to a government does have limits, and you'll even see it in the Bible multiple times, Old Testament and New Testament. God's law still takes priority, right? So you see examples in the Bible where people will disobey the government 
when they know that the government is asking them to do something that God doesn't want them to do, right? You remember, there's multiple stories. Um, Daniel in the lion's den, right? Daniel got caught praying, you know, gets thrown in. He was going to keep praying no matter what the law said. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and why? They said, we will not bow down to this golden image, right? That's what the law said. You are required to bow down and worship. They said, we will not. And their penalty was to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, we, you know, we always look at the end and say, oh, yeah, well, that's wonderful. That's great. You know, God saved them and woohoo, right? No, it, they didn't know they were going to be saved. You read the story. They said, God can save us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down. These are men who had committed, right, to do the right thing no matter what, right? So uh, in the New Testament, you'll see the disciples were ordered right in Acts, I believe it's uh, Acts chapter 5-ish, where they're ordered to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop talking about him. You know, they bring them in, they imprison them, they're threatening them, you know, they're doing all this stuff. And in Acts 5... They said this, we must obey God rather than man. That's what they said. So there's, of course, there's a limit. But the, it's, it's really rare, especially right now. I mean, it may not become so rare in the future. But it's a little bit rare right now. Ready to do good, he says. Ready to do good. It says we should be ready to do good. So... Uh, it's not just about obeying the laws. It's not just about keeping your nose clean and, and staying out of trouble and paying your tax and trying to be a good person. Doing what is good actually moves us from being passive to being active. You see that? The word doing kind of gets, it, gets you uh, thinking that way, right? Doing good. It requires something of you. So he's saying, listen... You've got to do good in your society. You've got to get involved. You've got to be difference makers. You've got to get out, join committees, be involved, spread the message, like do something good. You've got to be the salt and the light that you're called to be. How can you be salt and light if you're never out mingling in the society that you're called to, right? So he's saying you've got to make a difference. You've got to do good, not just... Be the law-abiding citizen and stay quiet. That's wonderful. That's great. But there's more to it than that. You actually have to do good. Look what he, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 13. It says, uh, put that up for me. It says, you're the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds, your good what? Deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So you're called to do good, to be that salt. If salt loses its flavor, it's worthless. You're light, but if your light is hidden, you know, hide it under a bush, 
Oh, no, I'm going to let it. Come on, we're called let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Come on, right? So we, ha- we have to let it shine. And the way we let it shine in regards to government and society is being people who are out there making a difference. We're not cocooning in our houses. We're people out there doing stuff. So being salt and light involves action. It involves right living. It involves interaction with people and with society. We can make a difference, by the way, if you're ready to do what is good, if you're ready to get involved in society. Doing good obviously includes your neighbors, your friends, your family, your colleagues, fellow students, if you're a student, anyone that you have contact with, right? If we show this, doing good in practical ways, if we show this in practical ways, it, 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 it shows that we genuinely care for people and we have their best interest at heart. And it really shows that we're doing what we're called to do, being the salt and the light that we're supposed to be. So he says, live right with the government and do good. Be involved. Put your hand into society. This is the thing you are in the world, but you are not right. So, but we're in it. And while we're in it, we're supposed to let our light shine. Right? That's the point I think he's making here. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Put that up for me. He says, they must not slander anyone and they, uh, and they must avoid quarreling. Uh, instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. So he's saying, this verse is encouraging the church, the leaders, and everybody that's, on the, in, going, uh, that's a believer on the island of Crete. It's encouraging them to live right with everybody else, right? He says, start by, how about this? Let's just start by not slandering people. How about that? How about just starting there and not and, and, and just avoid quarreling, right? So he's referring here to like insulting, abusive language. So, you know, I would just say even it, 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 it relates to to verse 1. And just take this for what it's worth, okay? But if, if we feel it's necessary to criticize a politician, uh, a fellow believer, anybody... I would just ask us all to take great care how we express ourselves because it matters. It matters. And, and I think it's important that we note how we're expressing ourselves. I mean, have you noticed in this world lately? I, 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 honestly, I feel like it's getting worse over the last 10 years or so. People have forgotten how to disagree with any level of respect. Zero. We can't disagree about anything with respect anymore. So it's like if we disagree on anything, we yell and we scream, I don't listen to you, you don't listen to me, and now we're enemies and walls go up, right? Whatever happened to the day when you could go out with somebody, have a chat, he expresses something to me, and then I say something like, wow, you know what? I've never thought about it that way. I don't, I, I wouldn't, I don't think that's true. This is what I think. And then you have like a proper conversation where ideas can be expressed, where disagreements, in fact, uh, Jimmy's not here today, but even if he was, I tell, when, when Jim McMillan started coming around the church, he didn't believe in God. 
and he was coming to church every Sunday, and he, I said, why are you coming to church? He goes, I don't even know. I don't believe anything you say from the front. I think your songs are nonsense. I said, well, why do you come? He goes, I don't know. He says, I just feel good when I come, right? And then one day he was sitting and he was crying in church during worship time. And he, after church, I said, hey, I noticed you were crying today. And he goes, it's weird, man. He goes, I never cry. He goes, I don't know what it is. And I said to him, I do. And he goes, you do? Like I was a big secret. And I went, mm-hmm, I do. His name is God, <laughs> right? And he was like, oh, that's nonsense. But I say all that to say, I would go out, Jimmy and I would go out all the time, and you can ask him, and this is the truth. We would sit in Fickle Pickle or wherever we were going, and we would respectfully disagree pretty much on everything. Seriously, everything. He, he, he would talk, he would ask me all the classic questions, you know, oh, you know, uh, heaven and hell and, and, and creation, and you can't believe that nonsense, and, and we'd go through it all every step of the way and the whole conversation we'd have meat for breakfast for an hour we didn't agree on one thing one thing but it was i loved the conversation and he did too because we were friends and you know what it's it's something that we need to get back i i listen i'm just giving you a, a victory story uh, i haven't done it perfect all the time either i'm a person i can get I can get frustrated and mad and pop off too. But the point is, is we have lost this art form almost of learning how to talk to people and disagreeing, but still loving the person and respecting the person and letting them know that we do, right? So we can have an hour-long conversation for weeks. This went on for months and months and months, as you know, before, guess what? Finally, he gave in and said, God is real. Jesus profoundly saves him. And now he reads his Bible an hour every day. And he says to me, I can't believe everything you are saying to me. It's so real and so powerful. And I went, what took you so long, you know? So, but this is, this is, it's something that we need to do better, right? It's something that we need to do better. When, just because somebody slanders us, meaning they, 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 they talk by insulting us and by abusing us and by, by, doing, you know, by, by doing the classic, what everybody does out there. What, you know, what we need, this is why self-control is so important, that you need to be able to just take it. Okay? You need to be the bigger person. You need to be able to just take it and respond with grace and respond with truth, but respond with love. And as you love the person... And as you show genuine care for the person that you really do have their best interests at heart, there's something very powerful about that interaction. They may not believe everything you say. Just, just let the Holy Spirit... I, just, I would go and say, sick them, Lord. Just sick them. Just sick them. I plant the seed and you go get them. You know? You just, like, but this... We, you see how we lose... We lose something when we can't interact and disagree with respect. And so I'm challenging us all. We need to be people who can take it. We need to be people who learn how to express ourselves. And we need 
to, to be people who regain the skill of disagreeing with respect. It's a skill that we've lost, and it's to our discredit and to our shame, if I might add, that we have lost it. And I encourage us, please, get it back, because it's so important. Everybody, you know, everyone that gets angry in the language that comes out of your mouth, you know, it, it can get more insulting and more abusive, and, and disagreements just rise up, you know, that we can't, you know, like there's somebody in your life probably right now that you can barely have a conversation with without, without it turning into an argument. Don't have to raise your hand or anything, but you know, you know who that is. That's the greatest person to start this with, right? We have to diffuse this nonsense. And we have to let genuine care and love start to flow out of our mouths in a greater way. Just because somebody speaks to you that way, it doesn't give you the right to give it back, Christian. You've got to be better than that. And that's the challenge. We need to be careful not to verbally abuse others who are created in the image of God, by the way. Always remember You're dealing with somebody who's created in the image of God, somebody that Jesus died for, and somebody that he loves passionately and that you should love too. And so keep that in mind when you're dealing with that difficult person. And I know you're saying, but you don't know. Oh, I know. I have difficult people too, you know. But it's a challenge for us all to live this way. These are people that God loves, and we need to show that to them. Look at what James says. It's the classic James chapter 3. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. You can tame a fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. Right? And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. And then he wraps it up by making the obvious point. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. This is not right. Deadly quiet in here, but it's not right. Yeah, thank you, thank you. My wife's not here. I need extra help. Yeah, and I'm down an hour sleep. I'm a little dull, but so are you. So I guess we're all even, right? Except for Wendy and John, they went to bed an hour. See, he says, be gentle. Okay, so he goes on to say, be gentle or or peaceable. Some uh, translations say peaceable. We're not to be people who resort to violence. So when people who are slandering and abusing and quarrels go on, guess what the next natural reaction is? It goes up and up and up and up and up and up. And then somebody gets punched in the nose, right? This is what he's saying. So you got to cut it off. We're, pe- we're gentle. We're people who don't resort to violence. It is an aspect of self-control. All of this is an aspect of self-control. And we must grow in the fruit of the Spirit called self-control. It, 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 it mingles through almost everything we do. It is very important. So when tensions are running high... We're not to make it worse by exploding in uncontrollable anger. 
He says, show true humility. There's a lot of false humility in this world. Have you noticed? But he's saying, again, it's the challenge to be the real thing, to truly be a man or a woman who works at being humble. You know, try, you know, you do what you can. When you know that pride and arrogance is rising up in your life, then you repent and you make it right. That it's, it's, it's something that you keep on top of. It's such a major turnoff. Pride is a major turnoff. Don't you agree? The last person you want to spend time with is an arrogant person, right? It, by the way, it's, it's, it's such a, pride and arrogance is such a major turnoff to God too, right? I call it a God blocker. It says he hates pride. Just he puts the block up, right? God hates it and people hate it. Right living, we're, we're being challenged to live right here. And right living includes being a person who has humility. Right living is a theme that just continues to run through this letter. I just wanted to show this to you. Titus Titus chapter 2 says, look at this. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will uh, will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. That it? Is that all I put? Titus 3 8, then. Go to there. It says, This is the trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good, and they're beneficial to everyone who would follow them, is what he's saying. So the way we live is very important. People need to see a consistency between the salvation that we profess, right, and the way that we live it out. And when there's a disconnect, then, then we're, what we're, we're seen as hypocrites and the message and the word of God loses power. See, do you understand that to somebody who doesn't believe, who doesn't believe anything about the Bible or Jesus or anything, the only proof, the only thing that they see, the only thing that they know is your life, Right? And, and if they look at your life, even if they don't believe anything you say, they know that you're different, right? They know there's something unique about you. And it's like a little thorn. It's a little hook. I always say it's a little hook that just pulls you in, right? Like, it's something that they can't deny. They can deny what you believe. They can deny the Bible or deny this or deny that. But they cannot deny a transformed life. It's lived out and it's powerful. So he's saying you've got, to see, you've got to teach them right, but the right teaching has got to lead to right living or our message becomes useless. It's so important to tie that in. So he says, uh, put up for me Titus 3, verses 3 to 8. This is uh, as we head into the end here. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. When God, our, but when, but, long pause, but, this is one of those but God, right? But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, 
He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial to everyone. This passage, this, this uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, it's one of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation in the entire Bible. It ranks right up there uh, uh, among, among just how amazingly clear and profound it is. It's such a beautiful way that he's described it. God knows that we can't live right on our own. He knows we need help. And there's a lifestyle that he wants us to embrace. And these verses are a reminder to us and a motivator to us that we can do it. So he's saying, "How? I want you to live right. I want you to live right. I want you to live right. And so the question is, but I can't. How can I live right? He's saying, I'll tell you how you can live right. This is how you can. Four words stand out. Right? They're kindness, love, mercy, and grace. He says, when he revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. And sometimes, listen, sometimes, <laughs> this is true, the more we know a person, the less we like them. Okay, maybe you don't have anyone in your life like that, but I've met a one or two, right? The more we get to know a Sometimes the more we don't like them. But here's the thing. God knows everything you have ever done. He knows everything you've ever thought. He knows everything you're ever going to do. And guess what? He still loves you. And you don't deserve it. Did you know that? I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But when he reveals his kindness and his love... We are saved, it says. It's, it's really cool. Look at 3.3 just one more time. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But when God reveals his kindness and love, he saved us. That's what he goes on to say. His kindness and his love help us to live right. They help us to love others. Are you with me? They, they, it's been given to you to help you, that you have, you have been saved, but his love and his kindness have been given to you so that you can pour it out onto others. It's not always just for you. There, it, it, there's enough for you, but because he's so big, he fills you up to overflowing, and then your cup runs over, and you spill out his love, and you spill out his kindness onto people. You're always full, but you are always overflowing enough to touch somebody else with his love. So how can you live right? Because of his love and his kindness. His love was given to us, and we were, verse 3, basically no different than anybody else. We weren't any better off. We were slaves to sin. We, were, we had our baggage. We had our issues. We had 
all the same problems that people have now that don't know the Lord. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were all those things before we met Jesus. But then he says his mercy was given, right? Look at verse 4 and 5. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his, say it with me, mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. See, we're saved not because of the good things we've done. We can't earn it. We're saved because of his mercy, right? We, mercy is receiving something that you don't deserve, right? We've, we've received salvation. We've been delivered from condemnation. We've received something that we don't deserve. Some people, you see, I was thinking this week, some people think, they still think that they need to clean themselves up, you know, before, um, you know, uh, they can come to God. Like, like they have to improve, you know, to deserve his mercy. And it's so wrong. Like, it's, so, it's such a misunderstanding, right? Uh, like, you have it so wrong. He, he doesn't need you to clean up. You know why? Because he's just going to build something new anyway, right? And I got thinking about the old church building, okay, in relation to this. And I think you'll get the analogy. So the old church building was sold to a developer and they were going to knock it down, okay? So would it have been foolish, right? His point was this. I don't want the building. I just want the site so I can build on it, right? I just want the land so I can build something on it. So the night before the old church was scheduled to be demoed, did I run over and get a team of people with all the pastors and people willing to come? Did we run around polishing all the windows and mirrors, vacuuming all the carpets, making sure that all the toilets were clean? Did we do that? Hopefully not. Because we would be insane, right? Why would we do such a worthless endeavor, right? He didn't care about the carpet and the windows and the toilets and the building. He just wanted the site so he could build on it. And I'm saying, listen, we can't we can't let people think that they have to clean themselves up and you know before they're good enough to receive his mercy. They they can't uh, you know I got to fix this and fix that before I'll be, I'll get accepted or before you know uh, I'll, I'm I'm worthy. And the point is is he doesn't need you to clean up because he's just going he just wants the site and your permission to build because your old life is gone and the new life rises up. You don't need to clean the old because he's going to smash it down brick by brick anyway. He just wants the site and your permission to build. This is a powerful truth. All he wants is the site. Grace. Grace. He says grace. We talked a lot about grace last week. It's such a powerful thing. Verse 7 says, because of his grace, he declared us righteous. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting something you don't deserve. And they get tied together a lot, but they're different. 
God's grace in our lives, it compels us to live right. We talked about that last week. And I was thinking, because of the great blessing that we've received, I'm going to pull a Peter Parker here. With great power comes great responsibility. Does nobody watch old Spider-Man movies anymore? Oh, my goodness. Everton, you know that one? Man, I thought, I thought that was a good one. I, okay, okay. Anyway, we have been given so much. Great blessings require great responsibility on our part. We, we have kindness, love, mercy, grace, and, and on and on and on and on it goes. Look at, look at Paul t- touches on the same kind of thing. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is in the New Living Translation. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. His love, his mercy, his grace, right? All this stuff. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. See, because of all that he's done, He's saying, because of all that he's done, because of all the blessings that he's poured out, of all the good things that he's done in you, of all the good things that he has in store for you in this world and in the world to come, you have got to serve him. You've got to understand this, that you have got to give your bodies as a holy living sacrifice because of all that he has done. This is the challenge right? We tie in our right teaching and it's got to permeate down into right living when we walk out those doors. Or we steal the power that the gospel has potentially. People don't believe what you say, but they cannot deny a life that's well lived. And this is, this is the challenge before us. There's, salvation has, and I've got to wrap up here, but salvation has three big things. Three big things. It has a new beginning, it, has a new stand, it gives us a new beginning, a new standing, and a new future. A lot of people would like a fresh start. Look at a new beginning just quick. A lot of people would like a fresh start. We wish we could go back and do some things differently. Oh, man, how many things in my life do I wish I could go back and just do that different? You know, you, you with me? Why did I have to say that? Why did I have to do that? Why? Oh, if I could go back, you know. But here's the thing. When God saves us, he tears down our old building and he gives us a new beginning. It is a new beginning. It truly is a new beginning. Look at Titus 3, verse 4 and 5 again, just real quick. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us a what? New birth and new life through the Holy Spirit, right? So this whole new life begins. In fact, we talked about it when we did the series back, uh, back in the fall of All Things New, and we talked a lot about that. But he gives us something all brand new. The whole of our nature is affected for good. It impacts the way we live. A new life has begun. Transformation occurs. And something compelling, wonderful, and transformative begins to happen in us. This is a powerful truth. 
We get a new beginning. He even, you know, he even prophesied all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 36. Put that up for me. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. We know that we're not perfect, but through the Spirit, a transformation has begun. Our past failures are forgiven. In fact, they're forgotten. And something new rises up on the site that used to be the old building, and now the new building begins to take its place. It's a new beginning. He says, a new standing. Look at Titus 3, 7. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Confidence. NIV says he, it, it gives us hope that we will inherit eternal life. Remember week one when we talked about hope and confidence? This is the same kind of thing going on here. Some uh, uh, Confidence is a better, uh, uh, in my humble opinion, sorry, uh, translators of the NIV. This is, this, is a, this is a truer word. It's not hope, like, I hope the rain stops. I hope I have a nice lunch. No, it, we don't hope for eternal life like that. We have confident hope that eternal life awaits us. Amen? That we have a God who promised it to us, and He is a God who does not lie. Right? Come on, that's good stuff. He gives us confidence His grace, he declares us righteous, and it gives us confident hope, confidence that we will inherit eternal life. We know that it's there waiting for us. We know that one day we will see him. We know that one day we will be united again with people that have gone before. We know that eternity in his presence awaits us. This is why we live with confidence. He has declared us righteous because of his grace. It's a new standing with God that we didn't have before. We were before it was you were disobedient, you were enslaved, you were foolish, you, you, you were trapped in sin and pleasure, you were letting all these things, but this is no. Now you have been declared righteous because of his grace. And in spite of all your sin, in spite of all your baggage, all your skeletons, all your problems, all the mistakes that you've ever made, he declares you righteous in his sight. This is good news today. It is powerful stuff that he forgives us and frees us from the condemnation that we so deserved. That we become heirs of eternal life. He gives us not just a hope, but he gives us confident hope to know that all is well. For you have been declared righteous, and I have prepared a place for you, and I am a God who does not lie, and one day I will come and I will bring you on home, and we will be together forever. This is the promise of God. A new standing. His grace has declared us righteous. And all this, of course... It's because of Jesus. Just say his name. Jesus. It's just because of Jesus. We have a new standing. 
And last, he says, you have a new future. Look at 3.7, just one last time. Titus 3.7, because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. We are no longer separated from God by sin. We have been reconciled. We have been adopted in. We have been forgiven, saved, set free, sanctified. Those who believe and receive Jesus go through this life together with him because he is with us all the time. He gives us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Like I said, when the NIV says we have hope for eternal life, it's okay, but understand that it's confident hope. In chapter 1, we talked about it, and I, I just yelled at you about it, so you know that, but it's confident hope. Eternal life, seriously, it's not a maybe. I want you to just receive that today. It's not a maybe. It's real. He promised it to us, and he's a God who does not lie. It's ours. It's ours. It's confident hope that when we close our eyes for the last time here on this earth, we will open them in the presence of the Lord. Eternal life is not a maybe. It's a promise of God. One day, one great and glorious day, we will all be together. You know why fellowship is so important now? Because it's, 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 it's a little pre-heaven. Because in heaven, we're going to sit around that great supper of the Lamb. We're going to eat together. We're going to swap stories together. We're going to talk about all the things in our lives that God did, how he has overcome by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the lamb. The stories that day will flow like we've never heard before. There will be, there will be tears of laughter, I think. There will be hugs and excitement. There will be people that we haven't seen. We will be so inspired, filled with a purity of joy that we have never experienced before. We don't even have a contemplation, how wonderful it's going to be. So this is just the, the, this is the band practice. This is the choir rehearsal for what's yet to come. Eternal life is ours one day. We will be together. Salvation gives us a new beginning. It gives us a new standing And it gives us a new future. And this is why we should be committed to right living now. Right? This is why we should be committed to right living now. Only the things that we do for Jesus last. Our cars stay here. Our clothes stay here. Our buildings stay here. Our houses stay here. Even when you just renovate your kitchen, darn it, it stays here. It all stays here. And I don't think we'll miss it for one second. It all stays here. Let's make sure we keep it in perspective. Amen? What we do for Jesus is the only thing at the end of the day that lasts. I've been honored many times to stand around the deathbed of somebody who's going home. And I'm telling you, there's a massive difference between saying goodbye to someone who knows the Lord and someone who doesn't. Huge difference. 
when someone who has confident hope is breathing their last, there's something beautiful about that. And I wish before you leave this earth, you have that experience with somebody. Somebody who loves the Lord. And you can watch them make that transition. It does something to you. Changes you on the inside. It's so real. I don't know how else to describe it. It's so real. And I always leave. Always. I walk out that door. And it so motivates me to live for Jesus. You with me? It so motivates me to do the right thing, to live godly, to grow in faith, to make a difference in my society, to just live for God. Because at the end of the day, this is all that matters. And there's something so powerful about that. One day, one day, we're going to be together. Separation, death, we won't have any more handicapped parking spots. We won't have any handicapped washrooms. We won't have any illness, no pain. No struggle. As we live in the presence of pure joy, pure love, and pure perfection. It's something that we can only dream of. This is why we must be committed to right living. Whatever is not right, please make it right. Whatever needs work, work on it. Ask him for his mercy. His grace is still sufficient, by the way. But I can't get over it. Yes, you can. Why? Because of his love, because of his kindness, because of his mercy, because of his grace. There are enough for you. There are enough for you. This is why we must be committed to right living. It is the least we can do. The least we can do is to give him the best we can. It's the least we can do.